time was 1938. The place, Hollywood. This is the story of one of the 456 films made that year. How it was made and why it has endured. Hello, I'm Algie Harnetz, and that's the East Gate of MGM. And for all the people who worked on the film, it was the entrance to the land of Oz. MGM wasn't quite a city in 1938, but there were two commissaries, a barber, a shoeshine boy, a chiropractor, and a man in charge of the lions. The 600 actors, producers, directors, writers, and their secretaries went home at night, but the studio itself was open 24 hours a day, six days a week. Nearly 4,000 people worked here then. Whatever had to be cast, welded, sewn, carved, baked, painted, or molded out of steel, lead, wood, rubber, leather, canvas, glass, or plaster of Paris could be made on this lot. If the picture on stage 15 needed an alligator, it was there. Or the picture shooting on stage 25 needed a half dozen chimpanzees, they were there. MGM's quota was one movie a week, 52 movies a year. But that quota was rarely met. The studio was only able to produce one movie every nine days. And production 1060, The Wizard of Oz, would become one of 41 movies released by the studio in 1939. The studio was run by Louis B. Mayer. He was a sentimental man who cried easily and carried grudges to his grave. He thought of himself as Papa to his stars. Benevolent or not, he was unquestionably the dictator at MGM, yet he was rarely involved in the day-to-day -day production of his motion pictures. One of his producers told me, L.B. never made pictures, he made contracts. He put half of the best directors in Hollywood under contract and some 80 or 90 writers, including Dashiell Hammett, Scott Fitzgerald, John O'Hara, and William Faulkner. Among the people Mayer brought to the studio in the late 30s was the man who would produce The Wizard of Oz, Mervyn Leroy. Leroy was enticed away from Warner Brothers at a salary of $6,000 a week, partly to replace Irving Thalberg, the creative head of the studio, who had died the year before. I always wanted to do The Wizard of Oz, and Sam Goldwyn owned the picture, owned the rights, and we bought it from Mr. Goldwyn. Frank Baum who went into bankruptcy 11 years after he wrote The Wizard of Oz, would have been amused at the over two and a half million dollar cost of turning his children's book into a movie. They didn't want to do that, believe me, to spend that much money. Because there was a lot of money in those days, two million six, a lot of money. And they, they almost fired me for spending so much money. It was about kids, and I always loved kids. I loved everything that I did. And it had a, 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 great, a great theme to it. And the whole thing was, there's no place like home. That's the whole story of The Wizard of Oz. Well, it's not quite the whole story. It took 10 screenwriters to turn Frank Baum's episodic fairy tale into a movie. And in the process, that theme of going home, which was a minor part of the book, became the major emphasis of the movie. These are the MGM script files in the basement of the Thalberg building. Thousands of scripts dating back nearly 60 years are stored here. In these red folders are the Wizard of Oz scripts. 
everything from a 1903 stage play to the final shooting script. This is a 17-page treatment by Herman Mankiewicz, the first of the 10 writers to be assigned to The Wizard of Oz. Mankiewicz, who would win an Academy Award for Citizen Kane in 1940, stayed on The Wizard of Oz less than two weeks. And while he was working on the movie, so were two other writers, Ogden Nash and Noah Langley. It was part of the affluence of MGM for three, four, or even five writers to be assigned to write competitively for the same film at the same time. Langley's treatment, which invented the Kansas farmhands played by Ray Bolger and Jack Haley, and turned Dorothy's real journey to Oz into a dream, was the one chosen by Leroy. Langley wrote four scripts. He was then taken off and replaced by Florence Ryerson in Edgar Allan Wolfe. A few months later, he came back and revised their scripts. And in reading through all those scripts, what really astonished me was that with each revision, the scripts got better and better. Writing by committee is not supposed to work, but in this case, it really did. Usually, Hollywood treated its composers, even great ones like George Gershwin, Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, as poorly as it did its screenwriters. The Wizard of Oz was an exception. E.Y. Harburg and Harold Arlen were given an opportunity to do something almost unique in Hollywood in the 1930s, to write an integrated musical in which the songs weren't simply dropped in like raisins in a rice pudding, but served to comment on the characters or to advance the plot. They were given that freedom by Arthur Freed, who would become the producer of the great MGM musicals of the 40s, and for this film was Mervyn Roy's assistant. The only two Academy Awards won by the movie were for the music. Harburg and Arlen won the first for best song, Over the Rainbow. Ironically, that number was cut from the film after the first preview because some MGM executives protested that no star should have to sing in a barnyard. Losing over the rainbow did not simply mean losing a pretty ballad. It meant losing the dramatic point of the whole Kansas sequence. According to Yip Harburg, it was Arthur Freed pleading and shouting at Mayer who forced the studio boss to put the song back in. The second Academy Award was for Best Original Score, but because of Academy rules, since changed, it didn't go to Harburg and Arlen. Instead, it was awarded to Herbert Stothert, who wrote the incidental music for the film. It's almost impossible to imagine an Oz that didn't star Judy Garland, Jack Haley, and Frank Morgan. And yet, none of them was a first choice for the film. Had the executives had their way, The Wizard of Oz would have starred Shirley Temple as Dorothy, Buddy Epson as the Scarecrow, Ray Bolger as the Tin Woodman, Ed Wynn as the Wizard, Gail Sondergaard as the Wicked Witch of the West, and Fanny Bryce as Glinda. MGM tried to borrow Shirley Temple from 20th Century Fox, where she was under contract. But Fox refused to loan her, and MGM decided to make a star out of a pudgy little girl who had been put under contract three years earlier. Frank Morgan did not get the part of the wizard until both Ed Wynn and W.C. Fields turned it down. Fanny Bryce lasted only for a memo or two, but Gail Sondergaard almost did play the Wicked Witch. It was Mervyn Leroy's idea to have a glamorous, slinky witch in a tight black sequin dress. <laughs> Luckily, he was talked out of it and Margaret Hamilton was cast as a more traditional witch. Although she appears for only 12 minutes in the entire film, her impact would frighten generations of children. 
Well, I think it's a children's picture without a doubt. But I think for very little ones, it's very terrifying. And I think the witches that at fault, they, that's the way they wanted it. Now, the only time I think it really is too much and almost too much for me is that one big close-up of me inside the globe. She turns around, she's really very hard to take. I think if I were little, I would have gone under the chair myself. In the days when a gallon of gas or a loaf of bread cost six cents, the Wizard of Oz actors were paid extremely well. Perhaps the star Judy Garland was underpaid at $500 a week, only the dog Toto made less, but Charlie Grapewin and Clara Blandick, Uncle Henry and Aunt Em were each paid $750 a week. Billy Burke was under contract to MGM for $766.67. Margaret Hamilton got her usual $1,000. Bert Lahr and Frank Morgan made $2,500 each. The top salaries, $3,000 per week, went to Jack Haley and Ray Bolger. Despite the money, neither of them was very happy. Bolger had always wanted to be the scarecrow, but the studio cast Buddy Epson instead and chose Bolger as the Tin Woodman. Only after weeks of pleading was Bolger able to convince MGM to switch the parts. Jack Haley had no desire to be in The Wizard of Oz at all. Under contract to 20th Century Fox, he was ordered by that studio to report to MGM as the replacement for Buddy Epson's Tin Man. Epson had been poisoned by his makeup, the aluminum dust that was powdered on his face coated his lungs, and he ended up in the hospital in an oxygen tent. According to Mervyn Leroy, Richard Thorpe, the first director, was fired because he didn't have the mind of a child. George Cuco was brought in, and he was appalled by the footage he saw, despite the fact that he considered The Wizard of Oz a minor book full of fourth-rate imagery. He agreed to help Leroy out by doing four days of tests. Cukor took off Judy Garland's blonde wig, half of her makeup, and told her not to act in such a fancy schmancy way. Victor Fleming, the man who would direct most of The Wizard of Oz, seemed at first glance a strange choice to direct a children's movie. He was known as a man's man and a man's director, having directed most of MGM's Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable films. He would leave The Wizard of Oz two weeks before the movie was finished, turning it over to King Vidor, because Clark Gable desperately needed him to direct Gone with the Wind. Mr. Fleming was a lovely man, and uh, he was as handsome as many of the leading men whom he directed. He didn't give us much direction. He told us what he expected us to do, line up a scene, and come in here, go out there. Working in The Wizard of Oz was not acting, it was just movement. There's a shot in there where the wizard comes on, just his head, great big head. And you, straw man, let me ask you, and you know. And then this great big head is talking to us, we thought. And we walk, just walk a few steps ahead and then tell him what you think, why you. Uh... There was no direction, there was no direction needed. Step forward, Tin Man! You dare to come to me for a heart, do you? You clinking, clanking, clattering collection of collisionous junk! Uh, yes, yes, sir.
Y yes, Your Honor. You see, a while back, we were walking down the yellow brick road, and... Oh, yeah. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. On November 12, 1938, 124 midgets went through the East Gate to report for work as munchkins. One of the youngest, 17-year-old Jerry Marin, stood in that archway and thought, can you imagine it? I'm a movie star. They auditioned everybody, you know, for certain segments of the, of the sequence. So they said, well, put this fellow in here, that fellow in there, and then they saw me dance. And they said, okay, you'll be the lollipop guy. We'll put you in the middle with the big lollipop. It's so fine. So we rehearsed that, and that was the thing. And then we sang, uh, we're members of the Lollipop Guild, the Lollipop Guild, the Lollipop Guild. And in the name of the Lollipop Guild, we wish to welcome you to Munchkin Land. Then I handed Judy Garland the big lollipop. So I always wrote home and said, Mama, look for the guy with the lollipop, because that's me. The Munchkins ranged in size from 2 feet 3 inches to 4 feet 8 inches. Over the years, they've gained a reputation for having been drunk, lecherous, and violent. But little of the reputation is deserved. Some of the people at MGM treated them like dolls. Others were uncomfortable and refused to have anything to do with them. Leo Singer, the man who had the contract to supply MGM with midgets, and who rounded up most of the 124 munchkins, had a reputation for intimidating and cheating many of them. And I happened to run into some of Singer's midgets on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard. And I asked them about work. I had nothing in mind. They said, we'll, let, uh, we'll take your name and address and tell you later. Well, I got a, letter, a later call to come to Singer's home. He's the one that had charge of the midgets. And I was finally, well, they chose all, I guess, but he bid me in for peanuts. And I wasn't experienced with Hollywood money in that day to stick up for myself like today. And I remember we used to have to get up so damn early in the morning. Oh, it was awful, you know, from the hotel and go to Metro Golden Mayor and uh, going in that cold makeup room. We had to go downstairs in some cellar below some stage. I forgot what stage number it was, but it had big lines of makeup, man. And it was just amazing to see about 150 of us little guys getting ready. You're next, get up here, who do you do? I says, I'm the lollipop guy. They hired us just for the, the acting. There was no acting as far as we're concerned, because you were a whole group. Just make yourself cute and do it, that's all. When a picture has been around over 40 years, recreating or even remembering what happened is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. What Ray Bolger remembers best is Judy. I thought that she was the most adorable creature that, that, that was ever put on this earth and so right for the part of Dorothy. She was just like a little girl from Kansas. With great big eyes, she wasn't pretty, she was plump, but in a way she was beautiful. And we respected her because she did her job so well. It wasn't an unhappy set, even though Victor Fleming was quite a disciplinarian. I don't forget one time, uh, I said, see, I'm, I'm going to make a laugh. I, I took the straw out of my arm. I said, oh, I'm only a part of a scarecrow. I ain't got no straw in my right arm. And she, <laughs> she said, silly, you took it out yourself and you put it over here. And she came back and she stuffed it in again. And she said, now. He said, you're a scarecrow, and I went. This is the MGM art department where the 55 or 60 sets for The Wizard of Oz were designed. The Emerald City, 
the deadly poppy field, Munchkin land, the haunted forest, the Kansas farmhouse, the scarecrow's cornfield, all built on MGM's immense sound stages. Yet some of the most striking images in the film weren't built at all. It was just too expensive to build sets which required great height. So the top part was simply painted on a piece of cardboard, like this one, the outside of the Emerald City, or like this one, the corridor leading to the wizard's throne room. This cardboard and matte painting was then filmed. What was built on the sound stage was this little area in the center. And that, too, was filmed. And then the two pieces of film were combined in the laboratory. This technique of matte painting was used in many parts of the film, including Dorothy's departure from Munchkinland and her arrival at the Emerald City. I think my favorite characters in the movie were the winged monkeys. There were about 250 monkeys ranging in size from six-inch rubber toys to 20 small men dressed in monkey costumes. Toys and people were suspended on piano wire from the top of the stage. There were about 1,100 wires, four on each monkey. Inside most of the toy monkeys were lightweight armatures with hinges to make the wings go up and down. Making the monkeys fly was child's play compared to making a cyclone. The most difficult and costly of the film's special effects, the cyclone required a $12,000 gantry suspended from the top of stage 14. The cyclone itself was a 35-foot tall muslin windsock attached at one end to the bottom of the stage and at the other to a car beneath the gantry. As the car moved back and forth, the cyclone zigzagged. To heighten the illusion of a cyclone, dirt and compressed air were fed into it from the bottom, creating a dust cloud. This is the wardrobe department. It was a factory within a factory employing 178 people in 1938. One woman's entire job during the making of The Wizard of Oz was taking care of Judy Garland's gingham dress. There was a metal spray dyeing room and a room with a huge vat for water dyeing materials. And four women were kept busy from 7 in the morning until 10 at night, dyeing green shoes, green stockings, green dresses, and green coats for the Emerald City sequence. There were five or six copies of every costume, including these, the ruby slippers. This is the pair that sold for $15,000 at the MGM auction in 1970. The sequins were sewn on chiffon and then on to a cloth shoe by one of the ladies in Mrs. Cluett's beading department. There was an extravagance in the wardrobe department that wasn't matched anywhere else on the lot. Storerooms of superb velvets and silks, cabinets full of mink collars, dresses that routinely cost $500. Even the simplest of nightgowns worn by a star was designed, no matter how impoverished the character the star was playing. Victor Fleming was sent a $25 apron for Auntie M to wear. It looked wrong to him, and when he examined it and saw the price tag, he exploded. Damn it, he said to an assistant, here's a dollar. Go down to the five and 10 cent store and buy a decent apron. My mother worked in this wardrobe department for nearly 20 years, and I think I felt about MGM much as Dorothy felt about Oz. A lot of people ask me they, about, about uh, the costumes. I had a rubber mask, and uh, it was a rubber mask. And the only unfortunate thing about it was that it sort of closed the pores in my face, 
And when the lights got real hot and they uh, ate up all the oxygen, I couldn't breathe. Not as, as easily as I possibly would like to. And if I had to make any movement, I would be constantly out of breath and my heart would be palpitating. It was a terrible, horrendous, lousy makeup. You get in a chair at an hour and 45 to an hour to two hours later, you were made up as the, as the tin woodsman without your suit. And they cleaned my face or whatever it was, and then they put on a, some sort of a protective film of something. It was very, very light, and, and he worked that in, and then came the green, and the green had copper in it, and then they had uh, a large wart right here, and then they had this large, large horsehair coming out about that far out of the wart, which was charming. But worst of all, the dirt law, the cowardly lion. <laughs> what a perfectly ridiculous kind of costume to put on a fellow like Bert La, because Bert La uh, was, it was a nervous type. Bert La, he was always undoing the buttons. He was always uh, worrying about what he ate. He always had gas on his stomach. He couldn't eat anything. And, when, and in his costume, it was literally true. He couldn't eat anything. We, we, we finally took some of the makeup off. They took some of the makeup off, and we went to the commissary. And it was such a frightening thing to see for other people because what we looked like were people from another world. We, we would be all right in this modern day and time in one of those space pictures, but not in those days with those weird, weird kind of faces that we had. And they just kicked us out of the commissary and made us eat in the dressing room. People question me like you're questioning me now. So it must have been fun making that picture. It was not fun like hell. It was fun. It was a lot of hard work. It was not fun at all. There's nothing funny about it. For Margaret Hamilton, at least, there was nothing funny at all about December 23rd, 1938. This is stage 27. On that winter's day, it was Munchkin land, and it was here an accident happened that almost cost Margaret Hamilton her life. It was the end of my first scene of the picture. And she comes in and, and tries to get the slippers, and she can't, and this good fairies come and says, be gone, you have no power here, and so forth. And he says, she says, all right, but I'll get you. Uh, and a lot of stuff before that, and the public's favorite line, and your little dog, too. And then, um, and then I think she said, just, just try, stay out of my way, just try. And <clears throat> she whirls around and stands on, on this, and that was very tricky, because I had to do it without looking at it, and I had to get my two feet right in the middle of this little uh, uh, part that was, the, like it was pavement, was the floor. It was cut out and fastened to this little elevator, really, that went down slowly or went down fast. In this case, it dropped out from under me. It left my feet, and I followed it. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> We'd done the shot finally, it would rehearsed it, it was, and we were all, it went, and it went just like clockwork, and that's the one you see, the first one we did. Then, we came back from lunch, and everybody again is tired. It was all just one mistake after another, and uh, I stepped down, the smoke all came up, and I went down. And as I went down, got opposite the floor, and this, this is the thing that's so astonishing to me about fire, how quickly it takes such terrible toll. Uh, I felt just something warmth on my face. And then there were some dropping things burning, and I thought, what in the world is that? 
And of course, what had happened was that my broom and and uh, and, the, and the hat had caught fire, and they were, the firemen were putting it out. I had a wonderful young man, Jack Young, who really saved my life. When, when I was brought up out of the floor, they helped me up out. He was right there and grabbed a hold of me, and we ran to the uh, first aid station on the set, and where he began working on my face to get the, uh, the makeup off. And of course, it was what was happening. We didn't know this until really the next day, but I had a, a second degree on my face and third on my hand, one hand. But we weren't sure what they bound both hands up, and my entire face was finally. And they, after he got the makeup off, which was very traumatic for me because it was fraught. It was just it hurt so much. I was just. You know, you just, you sort of tremble. You just can't help it. You're just, I was just shaking with it. And finally he got through, and he'd given me something to put in my mouth with a rag or something, does this bite on, which helped. But, oh, it was, it was just, I'll never forget that. And anyway, he got it off, and he said, no, I think we're all right. I think we're safe. And I, I said, oh, I hope so. And he said, oh, I know it's been awful. And he said, but I'll tell you about it uh, when I see you. But he said, right now I want you to know that there's copper in that makeup, and if I didn't get that off, it would have gone on eating into your face. The film opened in Los Angeles on August 15, 1939, and in New York two days later. Lots of people went to see it, but most of them were children, and in those days, children got into theaters for 15 or 20 cents. By the time the cost of distribution, prints, and advertising were added in, the film lost nearly a million dollars. I was surprised to discover how poorly it was regarded by many critics. In the New Yorker, Russell Maloney said that he'd sat cringing before MGM's Technicolor production, which displays no trace of imagination, good taste, or ingenuity. Otis Ferguson, one of the most respected movie critics of the era, added, as for the light touch of fantasy, it weighs like a pound of fruitcake soaking wet. Any kid tall enough to reach up to a ticket window will be found at the Tarzan movie down the street. Well, that Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movie has long since been forgotten. But in 1978, The Wizard of Oz was voted the third best American movie ever made by members of the American Film Institute. Perhaps more than anyone else, the men and women who worked on The Wizard of Oz wonder about its success. I'm very surprised by it, I'm very happy about it. We never believed it was going to be as big as it is. And I think it'll go on for many, many years, long after I'm gone, a lot of other people too. Then television came, it was shown on television. Now it took a new impetus. It was terrific all over the world. I get letters from England, get letters from France. I get more mail on the picture than I did when it was originally shown. And I've been retired for years. I don't know. The hell, when you get my age and you're going to die pretty soon, I mean, what the hell is the satisfaction? You're going to leave whatever the satisfaction is. As a film, in the film theater, I don't know whether it would have survived the way it has now. But you know what happened? It ended in the home. So you, you could sit in front of that television screen and not with a whole theater full of people, but just your own family and your friends, maybe. And suddenly you begun to realize what it said. 
I feel that it has in it something that appeals tremendously to everybody, several universal things, and I think that business of going home is very deep in all of us. Whether it was home was a happy one or a complete one or broken or what it was, it's still home. And it doesn't necessarily have to be four walls. It is a situation or it is a circumstance, but it is home and it's where we belong. Why do we like to see it over and over again? because it gives a tremendous, it moves us to tears usually, it does me still, and it's tender and it's sweet and it's innocent in many ways. And I don't think this is a very innocent world today, that's my feeling about it. There is no simple reason as to why The Wizard of Oz has endured. Nobody connected with the film set out to make a classic. That the film should even have survived its 10 screenwriters, its four directors, and a major role recast two weeks into production is perhaps the most magical thing of all. Each of us grows up with his own private and personal relationship with the film, and perhaps it is that which makes the yellow brick road go on forever. Companion okay. Robin, unmasked. Those tights look pretty tight. How did the dynamic duo master the tight squeeze? Holy mouthful! It's the inside scoop turned inside out. Next Live James. Sunday at 10.30 on KCET. Ich kreuze nie meinen Weg. Wenn du es wagst, 
gehörst du mir, mein kleines Schätzchen, und dein Hund auch. <lacht> A film historian has noted that the enduring magic of the Wizard of Oz touches not only our children, but the child in all of us. The enchantment is easy to explain. The movie's sentiments are universal. Its timelessness, that of any great classic. Those who created this work came as near to perfection as anyone could ask. I first saw The Wizard of Oz as a schoolgirl in London, and I thought it was unlike anything that I'd ever seen before. It was so innovative and such great fun. Later, when I began to watch it on television with my children, and then my grandchildren, with each viewing, I realized that indeed this is a very special motion picture. A movie filled with values that we all cherish. A movie for all of us, for all time. This is part of a missing number from The Wizard of Oz. Why it is missing will be explained as we share the reminiscences of many who were part of the fascinating history of Oz. Backstage, there was confusion, chaos, and often danger. Now, for the first time, you're going to learn this remarkable story told by those who participated in the making of a movie classic. They didn't want to do that, believe me, to spend that much money. Because there was a lot of money in those days, two million six, a lot of money. And they, they almost fired me for spending so much money. We, we, we finally took some of the makeup off. They took some of the makeup off and we went to the commissary. And it was such a frightening thing to see for other people because what we looked like were people from another world were those weird, weird kind of faces that we had. And they just kicked us out of the commissary and made us eat in the dressing room. People question me like you're questioning me now and say it must have been fun making that picture. It was not fun like hell it was fun. It was a lot of hard work. It was not fun at all. There's nothing funny about it. I had to work with three very professional men, you know, Jack Haley and Bert Lauer and Ray Bozer. And they had so much makeup on. And they were so busy complaining about their makeups and each one was making bets as to which makeup was the most difficult all the way through the picture. I thought that she was the most adorable creature that, that, that was ever put on this earth and so right for the part of Dorothy. She was just like a little girl from Kansas with great big eyes. She wasn't pretty, just plump, but in a way she was beautiful. I'm frightened, Daddy. I'm frightened. I think she holds the whole picture together. Her sincerity that she wants to get back to Kansas. You believe her. She wants to get home to her aunt M and so forth. And that was the whole hub of the picture. But it's a wonderful picture. We're part of it. The one thing that we will be known for, no matter what we've done any place else in the whole world, will be the Wizard of Oz. Well, we don't get any residuals, but we have a better thing than residuals. We have a kind of immortality. And, and, and a great pride for being a part of a great American classic. You have to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. You find he is a wizard of wits, if ever a wizard there was. If ever, oh, ever a wizard there was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. You have to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. of Oz 
became a national heritage is a really fascinating story. It all began in 1900 when L. Frank Baum published his classic children's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Nearly 40 years later, the man indirectly responsible for bringing Oz to the screen was none other than Walt Disney. His Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is not only 1938's biggest hit, it is the most successful movie ever made to that date. This fact does not go unnoticed by other movie moguls, especially Louis B. Mayer, the highest paid executive in America. He reigns supreme at Metro-Golden-Mayer, a studio that boasts it has more stars than there are in the heavens. When it's suggested that MGM acquire the rights to The Wizard of Oz, Mayer is interested, but he has a problem. His brilliant head of production, Irving Thalberg, has passed away over a year ago. Mayer has been desperately searching for a successor and finally finds him. Mervyn Leroy, a bright 38-year-old producer-director, seems the perfect choice. Leroy accepts, and coincidentally, one of the first projects he proposes is Oz. Well, I always wanted to make The Wizard of Oz since I was a little boy. Mr. Mayer called me in and said, look, why don't you just produce this picture? You're so crazy about it. And I said, but, uh, but LB, I want to direct this picture too. He said, well, I think it's too big for you to do both. But I produced it and I'm very proud of it. To produce a motion picture this complex, Leroy definitely needs help. He takes on songwriter Arthur Freed as an uncredited associate. Years later, as a producer, Freed's name would become synonymous with the golden years of the MGM musicals. But at this moment, his biggest job is to help Leroy cast the picture. She has been the biggest star in the world for the past four years, and many think Shirley Temple is the natural choice to play the role of Dorothy. Leroy is under pressure to cast her. However, after hearing Shirley sing at an unofficial audition, Leroy and Free decide the demands of the part are beyond the talents of even this amazing ten-year-old. Still, on the off chance that things might change, Shirley seems prepared. I had a very good time in Bermuda with the horse and buggy, but I'm glad to be home. Because after all, there's no place like home. From the age of two and a half, when young Judy Garland began her vaudeville career as part of the Gum Sisters Kitty Act, she had been billed as the little girl with the great big voice. By the time she is 15 years old, her name has been changed from Frances Gum to Judy Garland. And she has been under contract to MGM for almost three years. She can sing and dance. She can play drama or comedy. Anyone in Hollywood who has seen her perform at benefits or private parties knows Judy Garland is destined for stardom. Leroy and Freed convince Maya that Oz could be her breakthrough. Judy must lose some weight, but the part of Dorothy is hers. When Mama spoke about making The Wizard of Oz, I could always tell what respect she had for the movie and how proud she was to have been a part of it. Whenever she watched the movie, you could see in her eyes that she loved making that film because she was a kid, she was 16 years old. She had a great time making that movie and it was a happy time. At 22, she was the toast of Broadway. At 29, 
Billy Burke married Florence Ziegfeld, living a life of luxury worthy of a fairy tale princess. Then in her 50s, Billy Burke begins a successful Hollywood career playing rich featherbrain matrons. Oz is Burke's favorite movie. As close as I have come, she says, to the kind of roles I did in the theater. I'm Glinda, the Witch of the North. You are? Oh, I beg your pardon, but I've never heard of a beautiful witch before. Only bad witches are ugly. The casting for the Wicked Witch causes a major controversy and has everyone at MGM going in circles. Frank Baum's concept in the original book, as illustrated by W.W. Denslow, isn't much help. But Mervyn Leroy has an idea. Since Disney's glamorous Wicked Queen in Snow White is so successful, why not make the Wicked Witch slinky and seductive? Freed and other executives protest. Leroy's mind is made up. On the MGM lot is Gail Sundergaard, who the year before had won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Anthony Adverse, a film directed by Mervyn Leroy. Leroy persuades Sundergaard to test for the role. Decked out in stylish black sequins with a form-fitting wardrobe to match, she is a knockout. Freed and the others are exasperated. Bad witches are ugly, they remind Leroy, like Disney's old crone in Snow White. So, Leroy orders the makeup department to give Sundergaard the ugly treatment. But her striking features defy the grease paint, and the distinguished actress decides she doesn't want the role. In those days, I was not about to make myself ugly, she says. I have no regrets. Absolutely no regrets. Then you take it and bring it up to your kisser and inhale. A former kindergarten teacher, Margaret Hamilton, is 36 years old and newly divorced. She has been supporting herself and her three-year-old son as a hard-working character actress. Chicken thieves, eh? Why, we'll gladly pay you for any damage that we've done. All right, three dollars. So I'd done about six pictures for MGM by that time. And uh, one day my agent called and said, uh, Maggie, he said, they're really kind of interested in you. And I said, what for? He said, uh, they're sort of interested in you uh, for a part in The Wizard of Oz. And I said, oh, gosh. Think of that. I said, I loved that story from the time I was four years old. What is it? And he said, well, the witch. And I said, <laughs> the witch? <laughs> and he said, then he said the final thing. He said, yes, what else? <laughs> The title role of the wizard encourages many diverse contenders. Ed Wynn, a popular radio comedian who concludes the part is too small. Wallace Beery, one of MGM's most popular stars, wants the role badly, but the studio refuses to spare him during the long Oz schedule. And W.C. Fields. Everyone at MGM is impressed by his recent triumph in David Copperfield, but Fields haggles endlessly over his salary and time runs out. One of MGM's most durable character actors, 48-year-old Frank Morgan, finally wins the role, or rather five of them. He is delightfully versatile as the wizard, Professor Marvel, the doorman, the cabbie, and the guard. This is the last straw. <laughs> Everyone's favorite choice to play the cowardly lion is Bert Law, Broadway's leading clown known for his explosive comedy style. 3,000 bucks? Huh. 
He knows nothing of Epson's calamity, but Haley's makeup has been quietly changed from aluminum powder to aluminum paste. When Haley reports to MGM, he encounters a concerned director, Victor Fleming. The first day shooting, we had a little talk. He says, Jack, have you thought about how you're going to approach this? I said, sure. He said, how? I said, well, I have a son, four or five years old. And when I go home at night, he insists that I come up and tell him a story. My thinking is to have that same approach in the character. He said, well, give me an example. Well, a long time ago, I was standing here, and it started to rain. That's it. That's it. And it was the right way to do it. But he knew it right away when he heard it. He knew that was, that was what he wanted. Camera's ready. Sound is ready. Places, everybody. Quiet, please. All right, Bill, turn him over. Speed. Way back. One, two, three. After weeks of uncertainty, cameras start to turn. But the troubles of Oz have only just begun. The man who invented Oz with all its colorful characters has a life story almost as improbable as his creations. In 1856, Lyman Frank Baum is born to a wealthy family in upstate New York. But once on his own, success seems to elude him. He fails as a store manager, reporter, and traveling salesman. In 1898, his mother-in-law inspires him to write a children's story based on the fantastic tales he constantly invents to entertain his four sons and their friends. But first, Baum needs a title. One day, he was sitting at his desk and looking at his filing cabinet, and the first drawer was A to N, and the second drawer was O to Z, which would be Oz. But that would be an excellent title for the imaginary land. Oz becomes a publishing sensation with the first 14 volumes written by Baum. The successful author moves to Hollywood, where he writes, produces, and directs several Oz silent films, but typically, his company loses money. Baum remains in Hollywood, turning out a new Oz book every year. His favorite pastime is puttering in his garden under the warm California sun. When L. Frank Baum dies in 1919 at the age of 62, a critic writes, the children of the world have lost their dearest friend. This is a first edition of L. Frank Baum's original Oz adventure. It's over 90 years old now, but the story's as fresh, lively, and imaginative as the day it was written. By 1938, over 10 million Oz books had been sold, captivating four generations of children. At MGM, the question was how to bring this classic to the screen without destroying its magical qualities. Well, it finally required the combined efforts of 14 writers and five directors to capture Baum's vision on film. The screenplay is credited to three writers, Florence Ryerson, Edgar Allan Wolfe, and a young man who deserves most of the praise. 26-year-old Noel Langley contributes key elements to the script. He changes Dorothy's shoes from silver to ruby. 
He establishes the fantasy characters as hired hands on the Kansas farm, and he inspires Dorothy to realize there's no place like home. Two young men from Broadway are assigned to write the songs for Oz. Harold Arlen will compose the music. E.Y. Yip Harburg will create the lyrics and make important contributions to the script and casting of the film. Harold Arlen recalls the birth of the most popular song from their score. Uh, we had finished most of the songs, or all of the songs, but uh, the one for Judy in Kansas. And I knew what I wanted, but when, when it doesn't come, it becomes one of those things that bugs you. And uh, most of us don't like to be bugged. I said to myself, I said, uh, let's go to Grandma's Chinese. And uh, I said, you drive the car. I, uh, I don't feel too well right now. I wasn't thinking of work. And as we drove by Schwab's drugstore, I said, pull over. And uh, we stopped. And I took out my uh, little piece of manuscript and put down what you know now is Over the Rainbow. Of course, it needed Mr. Harburg's lyric. An arid, colorless place. Almost no flowers there because it's so dry. The only thing in her life that was colorful at that point was, I thought, the rainbow. It was the only thing of color that she had ever seen. So I said, I must have a song with rainbow in it. She didn't sit there and say, all right, watch this. I'm going to really blow you away with this. This was just a song in a film. And her performance is the reason. It's the most perfect marriage of a song and an artist that's ever been. When Mama sang Over the Rainbow, she believed in the sentiment of the song with all of her heart. That's why whenever you hear the song, even today, you think of her. It was that personal. If happy little bluebirds fly. It sounds inconceivable, but Over the Rainbow is cut from the film after the second preview. It slows down the picture, some executives complain, and they consider it undignified for an MGM star to sing in a barnyard. But good sense finally prevails, and the song is restored. While the movie shuts down to recast Buddy Epson's part, Mervyn Leroy studies the results of the first two weeks of shooting. Leroy feels that director Richard Thorpe's footage lacks the childlike quality the film needs, and Thorpe is reassigned. Director George Cukor has a few days open before starting Gone with the Wind and agrees to help out. He, too, is appalled at what he sees. He begins altering makeup and costumes for many of the principals. Cukor particularly dislikes Judy Garland's appearance. He takes off her curly blonde wig and half of her makeup. And, he recalls, I told her to remember that she's just a little girl from Kansas. George Cukor departs never realizing how valuable his unsung efforts will be to the final film. And now Leroy makes a surprising decision. He chooses Victor Fleming to take over. Now, Fleming is a tough-talking, no-nonsense director who goes biking and big-game hunting with his buddy, Clark Gable. Despite this macho image, 
Fleming finds the project irresistible. I made the film, he says, because I wanted my two little girls to see a picture that searched for beauty and decency and sweetness and love in the world. Fleming works tirelessly on this difficult project. Then only a few weeks before completion, he is abruptly summoned to the Selznick Studios. There is trouble in Tara. On the Gone with the Wind set, Clark Gable and George Cukor are barely speaking. Gable threatens to quit unless producer David O. Selznick borrows his pal Victor Fleming. Selznick gets MGM to agree. Cukor is out and Fleming is in. King Vito, one of Hollywood's finest filmmakers, will provide the finishing touches on Oz. Sometimes we would being in the studio and knowing the director and uh, the studio would ask to ask you to take over and so then they said well would you take over Wizard of Oz I said I would and I went over and Victor Fleming was a good friend and took me around all the sets and went through the thing and one day he left and I took over it was about as I remember it was about two and a half weeks three weeks possibly <clears throat> which included the Somewhere Over the Rainbow but I did not want any credit, and as long as Victor was alive, I even kept quiet about it. Come out, come out. Another element of Oz falls into place when over a hundred little people march into MGM. The first and last time that such a unique gathering would take place. They are billed as the singer midgets, but many are freelancers from vaudeville and circuses all over the world. Only a few are rowdy, most are enthusiastic, and studio workers will never forget them. Munchkin memories are very special. The young man in the middle is Jerry Marin. We to welcome you to Munchkin Land. And that's when I handed Judy Garland the lollipop. I was 17, and uh, prior to this, I'd never seen a little man or person in my life, or a little woman. And I was all excited because I heard there were going to be quite a few little men and women. And, and we got on the bus where I seen all of them. I said, oh, I was so excited. Little guys just like me. And I watched how they walk, and I watched how they talk. And it was exciting. I said, my goodness, here I am in Hollywood for the first time in pictures and with the biggest studio. As runner, I'm well, when we met the casting director, he took a look at us and he picked about eight of us to say the lines of the Munchkin Corner. I probably enunciated a little bit more distinctly or more emphatically than some of the others. So he says, okay, you're the corner. And then, of course, Adrian, the gentleman who is in charge of costumes, measured every single munchkin and designed an individual costume for each person so that it took the costume department about five weeks to make up all these costumes, during which time we were rehearsing. So as soon as the costumes were ready, we were ready to start shooting. Jack Dawn took each one of us and said, well, now, what is your part? What are your lines? And then he would put on a makeup for us. And then as soon as he was finished with us, they would take a still shot, and that was put in the files. And then each other munchkin who had a speaking part was likewise done a master of makeup by Jack Dawn and put in the file so that when we were 
nature of the file, and one of the assistant makeup men would put on the same uh, whiskers and beard so that we would be the, have the same appearance every day that we were on the set. He's known as Leo the Lion's best friend, A. Arnold Gillespie, everyone calls him Buddy, is Hollywood's Dean of Special Effects. And Oz presents him with his greatest challenge. Buddy Gillespie must create a dazzling array of special effects, many of them never before attempted. A floating farmhouse and a floating head, a melting witch and flying monkeys, fireballs, talking trees and a terrifying tornado. Ever wonder how this special effect was accomplished? Gillespie drops a miniature farmhouse from the top of a soundstage. He shoots it in slow motion and later will reverse the film so the farmhouse appears to be falling into the camera. The floor of the soundstage is painted to look like a Kansas sky with some dry ice vapor for clouds. The most astonishing illusions often have the simplest explanations. Buddy Gillespie reveals his solution to a spectacular effect no one has ever tackled before. The Wizard of Oz, of course, presented a lot of very, very interesting problems. And the tornado was one of the toughest, naturally, that we had faced. We didn't quite know what to do. But anyway, the tornado was finally resolved by building a uh, funnel type of thing out of muslin. And uh, we put the top part of the thing on a gantry that moved the full length of the stage. And the lower part of the tornado was uh, went into a slot in the floor with a, a S sort of a path. And it progressed towards the camera with a dustpan with, with Fuller's Earth, which gave the cloud of dust at the bottom. And the, the tornado was about 30-some-odd uh, feet in length. From one standpoint of the work was that the hours were long and the time off from work was short. During this period, we had to have our dinner, sleep, and get back up again at five o'clock in the morning. We hardly ever arrived home uh, earlier than, than 7.30 or 8. So you see how, what a short time we had. There's no recreation, none whatsoever. Uh, Judy, of course, being a girl, but she had to have her hair done every morning. She had to have it exactly the same way it was the day before. Composer Harold Arlen's home movies provide the only backstage glimpse of the stars of Oz, all of whom managed to keep their spirits up despite long hours, intense heat, and uncomfortable wardrobe and makeup. A lot of people ask me about uh, the costumes. I had a rubber mask. Every, only the unfortunate thing about it was that it sort of closed the pores in my face. And when the lights got real hot and they uh, ate up all the oxygen, I couldn't breathe. But worst of all, the Burt Law. His costume was 90 pounds. <laughs> what a perfectly ridiculous kind of costume to put on a fellow like Burt Law, because Burt Law uh, was, was a nervous type. Burt Law, he was always undoing the buttons. He always had gas on his stomach. He couldn't eat anything. And in his costume, it was literally true. He couldn't eat anything. Jack Haley recalls his miseries. I was doing a, uh, a radio show. I had my own radio show. And staying up late with the writers, 
So I had to be on what they call a reclining board. And I would go to sleep as soon as I got on the reclining board. And Dora said, that Haley can sleep on a beat hook. In a film that is breaking new ground, there are all sorts of unexpected accidents and injuries. For Margaret Hamilton, Oz is a frightening experience that she will always remember. It was the end of my first scene of the picture. And she pulls around and stands on, on this little elevator that went down slowly or went down fast. In this case, it dropped out from under me. It left my feet and I followed it. And it went just like clockwork and that's the one you see. The first one we did. Then we came back from lunch and everybody again is tired. It was all just one mistake after another. And uh, I stepped down, the smoke all came up and I went down. Felt just something warmth on my face and then there were some dropping things burning and i thought what in the world is that i had a wonderful young man jack young who really saved my life and he was right there and grabbed hold of me and we ran to the uh, first aid station on the set and where he began working on my face to get the, uh, the makeup off we didn't know this until really the next day but i had a second degree on my face and third on my hand after he got the makeup off which was very traumatic for me because it was it was just it hurt so much i was just you know you just you sort of tremble you just can't help it you just, i was just shaking with it and finally he got through and he just said oh i know it's been awful and he just said i'll tell you about it right now i want you to know that there's copper in that makeup and if i didn't get that off it would have gone on eating into your face The legends of Munchkin mischief begin almost immediately. Most stories are greatly exaggerated. Some are true. An eyewitness is 31-year-old MGM contract player Robert Young. Well, it's kind of interesting. When I look back now. I always thought of a, a major lot as a, like a small town. And these Munchkins, they were all over the place. Uh, and so many of them, I lost track, I don't know, a hundred or something like that. And wonderful little people, I just loved them, adored every one of them. But they were all over the place, and they were hiding under benches, and they come out of the bushes, and they were climbing upstairs and falling downstairs, because as soon as the director said, cut, they went. <laughs> when we were doing the picture, they tried to restrict us, because don't forget you got about 125 midgets, and they were all curious, and, and there were two brothers. They were a little bit uh, drunky, you know, but not on the set, though, believe it or not. There was a one other little gentleman. He drank quite a bit, but he was very quiet. He was the perfect image of a midget, you know. Hamburg had the little king. I mean, he was, he was cute as a bug's ear. A boy could eat drink. No, they didn't have much time. We worked six days a week, from five in the morning till about six in the evening. The only day they had off was Sunday. So it was... Uh, 90% fabrication. It makes for good copy, I guess. Judy Garland's children, Liza Minnelli, and Joey and Lorna Luft have personal insights into the Munchkin adventures. The stories proliferate with their mother's occasional appearances on the Jack Parr TV show. Oh, I see. Well, what about the, the Munchkin? Yeah, how about the, the oh. what? <laughs> the munch, the munch, Munchkin. Munchkin. Yeah. Were they little kids or were they little men? They were men? drunks. They were little drunks? Dinner, and I couldn't say I don't want to go out. I 
can't because you're a midget. I, I just said, you know, my mother wouldn't fight. And he said, oh, come on, bring your ma, too, you know. How big was he? About two inches high. My <laughs> mother had an amazing sense of humor. And anybody who really knew her knew what a funny, bright, witty uh, raconteur she was. And she, her vocabulary was immense. And she had a way of telling a story. She could change anything. So anything that she talked about would become an epic joke, almost. And it, you, we used to love to listen to her. And she did that several times, telling stories about the Wizard of Oz. And they have since passed into a myth. I mean, they really, people believe a lot of the things that she has told, which, in fact, we know are not true. Whenever we do that little dance, at the yellow brick road. Yeah, I remember that. I was supposed to be with them. Yeah. You know. They'd crowd you. They'd shut me out. I, they'd close in, and the three of them, and I would be in back of them dancing. <laughs> and I was, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough, you know, to say, wait a minute. Uh, and so the director, Victor Fleming, was dying, man. He was always up on a boom. Would say, hold it, you three dirty hands, let that little girl in there. <laughs> Another tall tale by Judy Garland. New Year's Day, 1939. The Wizard of Oz still has three more months of shooting, but the MGM publicity department is wasting no time. An elaborate float makes a grand appearance in the Tournament of Roses parade, and thousands of children get an eye-popping look at their Oz fantasy characters come to life. Garland endures an endless barrage of interviews, radio shows, and silly newsreel appearances. It's a double privilege, Selma and Jeanette, to be able to congratulate you on being elected co-president of the Twins Club of Greater New York. Thank you, Judy. <laughs> Garland's 17th birthday party becomes a public event. She and Mickey Rooney are the newest rage among teenage moviegoers, and their boss, Louis B. Mayer, is well aware of it. The studio sends Judy and Mickey to New York to open the film. As innocent commuters scramble for their trains, Grand Central Station becomes a madhouse. The much-publicized arrival causes a near riot. 10,000 screaming fans are held back by an emergency squad of 250 patrolmen and 25 detectives hastily summoned to maintain order. But despite the heat in the bedlam, Mickey and Judy survive. When the Capitol Theater opens its doors, over 15,000 people are in line, circling the entire block. After each screening of Oz, Mickey and Judy perform a specially prepared musical comedy act. Garland and Rooney and Oz break all attendance records in one of the most successful launchings of a film in history. Wherever they appear, New York audiences go wild. One reporter says, these kids are the biggest news since Lindbergh came home. At the New York World's Fair, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia gives Mickey and Judy a guided tour. Uh, Mr. Mayor, that looks like we're going to move in. <laughs> <laughs> 
you move in, you tell the kids, and say, what do you think of this fair? Oh, Isn't it great? It's really wonderful. This would be the last summer of peace before World War II begins. For millions. For years. It's the end of the yellow brick road. No more rainbows. initial release, 
Oz would appear occasionally through several reissues and kiddie matinees. And then in 1956, along came television. For the first two decades, most viewers could only see it in black and white, which didn't stop the millions who had never seen it before from falling under its spell. You know, it's interesting how you can watch a bad movie, and once is enough. In the case of The Wizard of Oz, a hundred times may not be enough. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. For the next 30 years, Judy Garland makes successful appearances all over the world, and memories of The Wizard of Oz are never far away. No performance would be complete without Garland singing Over the Rainbow. In a letter to Harold Arlen, Judy writes, Over the Rainbow has become part of my life. It's so symbolic of everybody's dreams and wishes that I'm sure that's why some people get tears in their eyes when they hear it. I've sung it thousands of times, and it's still the song that's closest to my heart. I think it's endured because of people's dreams and because of the possibilities and because that there may be some place over the rainbow that everybody wants to find something better and even if it's more colorful or more outrageous or scarier or anything, you end up wanting to go home and then you know that's that's the best place you can be after all of the things that you learn no matter how beautiful everything else is home is what matters why, oh, why? Thanks for joining us on TCM as we continue our 100th birthday salute to Judy Garland. She's our star of the month. We'll have Judy's movies every Friday night in June. We just had her best-known picture, The Wizard of Oz, from 1939. Up next, the story of how that Hollywood classic moved from book to screen. From CBS in 1990, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, 50 Years of Magic. This documentary was directed by Jack Haley Jr., the son of Jack Haley Sr., he played the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. It provides an engaging behind-the-scenes look at the production of the movie.
First thing you'll learn is that The Wizard of Oz is much more than an American phenomenon. The film has had an impact on movie lovers all over the world, as you'll see from clips of the picture dubbed into several languages. As he was researching, Jack Haley Jr. was not entirely sure what he would find. He knew he had a story to tell, but it could have gone in a number of directions. As Haley started digging, he found bits of history he didn't know existed, including newsreel footage from promotional tours in support of the movie's premiere. Haley also uncovered rarely seen archival interviews with the original cast members as well as their children. Not insignificantly, Haley was married to Judy Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli, who you'll see sharing her mother's experiences making the picture. You also get a chance to see what might have been with a look at actors and actresses who at one time were considered to play various roles in the film, but in the end were left on the outside looking in at Oz. From 1990, hosted by a great supporter of ours at TCM, Angela Lansbury, as part of tonight's celebration of Judy Garland, this is the wonderful Wizard of Oz, 50 Years of Magic. Many, many miles east of nowhere lies the amazing land of Oz, a magnificent empire created in the mind of a man who wrote a great book about it. Like wildfire in the wheat field, the fabulous tale of the Wizard of Oz spread from town to city to nation to the entire world. The Wizard of Oz. More people have seen it than any other movie, over a billion of them. It's probably the most beloved movie ever made in any language. Vamos, vengan a pelear. ¿Quién será el primero? Pelearé con los dos si quieren. Oiga, oiga, váyase y déjenos en paz. Asustado, ¿eh? ¿Tienes miedo? No estarás a gusto metido en esa lata. Oh, des lions, des tigres y des panteras. Oh, mon Dieu, des lions, des tigres y des panteras. Ich warte meine Zeit ab. Und das merkt ihr, mein feines Kind. Es ist wahr, ich kann leider hier nicht auf dich lauern. Aber hüte dich, kreuze nie meinen Weg. Wenn du es wagst, dann gehörst du mir, mein kleines Schätzchen und dein Hund auch. A film historian has noted that the enduring magic of the Wizard of Oz touches not only our children, but the child in all of us. The enchantment is easy to explain. The movie's sentiments are universal. It's timelessness, that of any great classic. Those who created this work came as near to perfection as anyone could ask. I first saw The Wizard of Oz as a schoolgirl in London, and I thought it was unlike anything that I'd ever seen before. It was so innovative and such great fun. Later, when I began to watch it on television with my children and then my grandchildren, with each viewing, I realized that indeed this is a very special motion picture. A movie filled with values that we all cherish. A movie for all of us, for all time. This is part of a missing number from The Wizard of Oz. Why it is missing will be explained as we share the reminiscences of many who were part of the fascinating history of Oz. Backstage, there was confusion, chaos, and often danger. 
Now, for the first time, you're going to learn this remarkable story told by those who participated in the making of a movie classic. They didn't want to do that, believe me, to spend that much money. Because there was a lot of money in those days, two million six, a lot of money. And they, they almost fired me for spending so much money. We, we, we finally took some of the makeup off. They took some of the makeup off, and we went to the commissary. And it was such a frightening thing to see for other people because what we looked like were people from another world with those weird kind of faces that we had. And they just kicked us out of the commissary and made us eat in the dressing room. People question me like you're questioning me now. Say it must have been fun making that picture. It was not fun like hell it was fun. It was a lot of hard work. It was not fun at all. There's nothing funny about it. I had to work with three very professional men, you know, Jack Haley and Bert Lauer and Ray Bolger. And they had so much makeup on. And they were so busy complaining about their makeups. And each one was making bets as to which makeup was the most difficult all the way through the picture. I thought that she was the most adorable creature that, that was ever put on this earth. And so right for the part of Dorothy. She was just like a little girl from Kansas. With great big eyes, she wasn't pretty, just plump, but in a way she was beautiful. I'm frightened, Annie, I'm frightened. I think she holds the whole picture together. Her sincerity that she wants to get back to Kansas. You believe her, she wants to get home to her Aunt Em and so forth. And that was the whole hub of the picture. But it's a wonderful picture, we're part of it. The one thing that we will be known for no matter what we've done, any place else in the whole world will be the Wizard of Oz. Well, we don't get any residuals, but we have a better thing than residuals. We have a kind of immortality. And, and, and a great pride for being a part of a great American classic. You ought to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. You'll find he is a wizard of wiz, if ever a wiz there was. If ever, oh, ever a wiz there was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. You're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. summer of 1989, there is an extraordinary outpouring of affection as all across America fans celebrate the 50th birthday of The Wizard of Oz. From California to Kansas, from New York to Florida, a timeless movie continues to enchant generation after generation. On a drizzly Sunday morning in August, Midtown Manhattan comes to a halt as the most spectacular Oz event of the year takes place. This happening will find its way into the Guinness Book of World Records, with nearly 5,000 excited participants tap dancing down 34th Street. After weeks of rehearsal, the youngsters give it their all, knowing they'll be seen on TV, even if it's just for a fleeting moment.
the Wizard of Oz on tape. He taped it, and me and my sister watch it at least every day. We've all heard about the several pairs of ruby slippers worn by Judy Garland and how much they've been auctioned for. Anywhere from $15,000 to $165,000. Well, you can forget about those. These ruby slippers, created by the house of Harry Winston for the Oz anniversary, are valued at $3 million because they are made of real rubies. How the Wizard of Oz became a national heritage is a really fascinating story. It all began in 1900, when L. Frank Baum published his classic children's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Nearly 40 years later, the man indirectly responsible for bringing Oz to the screen was none other than Walt Disney. His Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is not only 1938's biggest hit, it is the most successful movie ever made to that date. This fact does not go unnoticed by other movie moguls, especially Louis B. Mayer, the highest paid executive in America. He reigns supreme at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, a studio that boasts it has more stars than there are in the heavens. When it's suggested that MGM acquire the rights to The Wizard of Oz, Mayer is interested, but he has a problem. His brilliant head of production, Irving Thalberg, has passed away over a year ago. Mayer has been desperately searching for a successor and finally finds him. Mervyn Leroy, a bright 38-year-old producer-director, seems the perfect choice. Leroy accepts, and coincidentally, one of the first projects he proposes is Oz. Well, I always wanted to make The Wizard of Oz since I was a little boy. Mr. Mayer called me in and said, look, why don't you just produce this picture? You're so crazy about it. And I said, but, uh, but LB, I want to direct this picture, too. He said, well, I think it's too big for you to do both. But I produced it, and I'm very proud of it. To produce a motion picture this complex, Leroy definitely needs help. He takes on songwriter Arthur Freed as an uncredited associate. Years later, as a producer, Freed's name would become synonymous with the golden years of the MGM musicals. But at this moment, his biggest job is to help Leroy cast the picture. She has been the biggest star in the world for the past four years, and many think Shirley Temple is the natural choice to play the role of Dorothy. Leroy is under pressure to cast her. However, after hearing Shirley sing at an unofficial audition, Leroy and Free decide the demands of the part are beyond the talents of even this amazing 10-year-old. Still, on the off chance that things might change, Shirley seems prepared. I had a very good time in Bermuda with the horse and buggy, but I'm glad to be home. Because after all, there's no place like home. From the age of two and a half, when young Judy Garland began her vaudeville career as part of the Gum Sisters Kitty Act, she had been billed as the little girl with the great big voice. By the time she is 15 years old, her name has been changed from Frances Gum to Judy Garland and she has been under contract to MGM for almost three years. She can sing and dance, she can play drama or comedy. Anyone in Hollywood who has seen her perform at benefits or private parties knows Judy Garland is destined for stardom. Leroy and Freed convince Mayer that Oz could be her breakthrough. 
Judy must lose some weight, but the part of Dorothy is hers. When Mama spoke about making The Wizard of Oz, I could always tell what respect she had for the movie and how proud she was to have been a part of it. Whenever she watched the movie, you could see in her eyes that she loved making that film because she was a kid, she was 16 years old. She had a great time making that movie and it was a happy time. At 22, she was the toast of Broadway. At 29, Billy Burke married Florence Ziegfeld, living a life of luxury worthy of a fairy tale princess. Then in her 50s, Billy Burke begins a successful Hollywood career playing rich featherbrained matrons. Oz is Burke's favorite movie. As close as I have come, she says, to the kind of roles I did in the theater. I'm Glinda, the Witch of the North. You are? Oh, I beg your pardon, but I've never heard of a beautiful witch before. Only bad witches are ugly. The casting for the Wicked Witch causes a major controversy and has everyone at MGM going in circles. Frank Baum's concept in the original book, as illustrated by W.W. W. Denslow, isn't much help. But Mervyn Leroy has an idea. Since Disney's glamorous Wicked Queen in Snow White is so successful, why not make the Wicked Witch slinky and seductive? Freed and other executives protest. Leroy's mind is made up. On the MGM lot is Gail Sundergaard, who the year before had won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Anthony Adverse, a film directed by Mervyn Leroy. Leroy persuades Sundergaard to test for the role. Decked out in stylish black sequins with a form-fitting wardrobe to match, she is a knockout. Freed and the others are exasperated. Bad witches are ugly, they remind Leroy, like Disney's old crone in Snow White. So Leroy orders the makeup department to give Sundergaard the ugly treatment. But her striking features defy the grease paint, and the distinguished actress decides she doesn't want the role. In those days, I was not about to make myself ugly, she says. I have no regrets, absolutely no regrets. Then you take it and bring it up to your kisser and inhale. A former kindergarten teacher, Margaret Hamilton, is 36 years old and newly divorced. She has been supporting herself and her three-year-old son as a hard-working character actress. Chicken thieves, eh? Why, we'll gladly pay you for any damage that we've done. All right, three dollars. So I'd done about six pictures for MGM by that time. And uh, one day my agent called and said, uh, Maggie, he said, they're really kind of interested in you. And I said, what for? He said, uh, they're sort of interested in you uh, for a part in The Wizard of Oz. And I said, oh, gosh, think of that. I said, I loved that story from the time I was four years old. What is it? And he said, well, the witch. And I said, <laughs> the witch? <laughs> and he said, then he said the final thing. He said, yes, what else? <laughs> the title role of the wizard encourages many diverse contenders. Ed Wynn, a popular radio comedian who concludes the part is too small. Wallace Beery, one of MGM's most popular stars, wants the role badly, but the studio refuses to spare him during the long Oz schedule. 
and W.C. Fields. Everyone at MGM is impressed by his recent triumph in David Copperfield, but Fields haggles endlessly over his salary and time runs out. One of MGM's most durable character actors, 48-year-old Frank Morgan finally wins the role, or rather five of them. He is delightfully versatile as the wizard, Professor Marvel, the doorman, the cabbie, and the guard. This is the last straw. <laughs> Everyone's favorite choice to play the cowardly lion is Bert Law. Broadway's leading clown, known for his explosive comedy style. 3,000 bucks? <laughs> we're rich, we're rich, we're rich! <laughs> happy times, boy, happy times, boy! <laughs> you brought us luck, you brought us luck! <laughs> <laughs> A very raucous, loud, energetic, uh, low comic. And uh, really, the only way he could make it in Hollywood, given that energy, was as an animal. Because as a real person, blown up eight times larger than life, that energy was kind of oppressive to uh, the paying customer. But as an animal, it was perfectly acceptable. Shame on you! <laughs> what did you do that for? I didn't buy them. No, but you tried to. He had been a bank clerk, a vacuum cleaner salesman, and an accountant. Not the usual background for an acclaimed Broadway star. Now under contract to MGM, Ray Bolger is thrilled to learn he will be in Oz until he finds out that he is to play the Tin Man. I was angry. I was really upset. I loved the thought of being the scarecrow. And I could not imagine anybody else playing the part. And I could do all the kinds of steps that I wanted to do. And there was something else. I don't know, I had a feeling if I could play this part, it would make a star out of me. And then I got my wife and I went up to Mr. Mayor's office. And we fought and fought and fought. And I finally won out. This extraordinary dance routine, directed by the inventive Busby Berkeley, makes brilliant use of Ray Bolger's unique style. Unfortunately, at the last moment, fearing the picture is running too long, the studio decides to cut the number. Recently discovered in the MGM vaults, it raises the question, how long is too long? Gosh, it would be awful pleasing to reason out the reason for things I can't explain. Then perhaps I'll deserve you and be even worthy of you if I only had a brain. Judy Garland dances with another veteran of the theater, 30-year-old Buddy Epson. He has been under contract to MGM for four years. 
and doesn't mind at all when he is switched from the scarecrow to the tin man. But his dream assignment turns into a nightmare. They put aluminum dust all over my makeup, recalls Ebsen, and this aluminum dust got into the air and pretty soon my lungs were coated with it. One night I took a breath and nothing happened. They got an ambulance for me and got me down to the hospital. While Ebsen begins months of recuperation from his near-fatal illness, MGM announces he will be replaced. With no further explanation, Ebsen considers this as the worst personal and professional disaster he ever endured. Ebsen's replacement is Broadway and movie star Jack Haley. On loan from 20th Century Fox, he knows nothing of Ebsen's calamity, but Haley's makeup has been quietly changed from aluminum powder to aluminum paste. When Haley reports to MGM, he encounters a concerned director, Victor Fleming. The first day shooting, we had a little talk. He said, Jack, have you thought about how you're going to approach this? I said, sure. He said, how? I said, well, I have a son, four or five years old. And when I go home at night, he insists that I come up and tell him a story. My thinking is to have that same approach in the character. He said, well, give me an example. Well, a long time ago, I was standing here, and it started to rain. That's it, that's it. And it was the right way to do it. But he knew it right away when he heard it. He knew that was, that was what he wanted. Camera's ready. Sound is ready. Places, everybody. Quiet, please. All right, Bill, turn them over. Speed. Playback. One, two, three. We come to see the After weeks of uncertainty, cameras start to turn. But the troubles of Oz have only just begun. Next on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, Tales of Munchkin Mischief by Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli. The man who invented Oz with all its colorful characters has a life story almost as improbable as his creations. In 1856, Lyman Frank Baum is born to a wealthy family in upstate New York. But once on his own, success seems to elude him. He fails as a store manager, reporter, and traveling salesman. In 1898, his mother-in-law inspires him to write a children's story based on the fantastic tales he constantly invents to entertain his four sons and their friends. But first, Baum needs a title. One day, he was sitting at his desk and looking at his filing cabinet, and the first drawer was A to N, and the second drawer was O to Z, which would be Oz but that would be an excellent title for the imaginary land. Oz becomes a publishing sensation with the first 14 volumes written by Baum. The successful author moves to Hollywood where he writes, produces and directs several Oz silent films, but typically his company loses money. Baum remains in Hollywood turning out a new Oz book every year. His favorite pastime is puttering in his garden under the warm California sun. When L. Frank Baum dies in 1919 at the age of 62, a critic writes, the children of the world have lost their dearest friend. 
This is a first edition of L. Frank Baum's original Oz adventure. It's over 90 years old now, but the story's as fresh, lively, and imaginative as the day it was written. By 1938, over 10 million Oz books had been sold, captivating four generations of children. At MGM, the question was how to bring this classic to the screen without destroying its magical qualities. Well, it finally required the combined efforts of 14 writers and five directors to capture Baum's vision on film. The screenplay is credited to three writers, Florence Ryerson, Edgar Allan Wolfe, and a young man who deserves most of the praise. 26-year-old Noel Langley contributes key elements to the script. He changes Dorothy's shoes from silver to ruby. He establishes the fantasy characters as hired hands on the Kansas farm, and he inspires Dorothy to realize there's no place like home. Two young men from Broadway are assigned to write the songs for Oz. Harold Arlen will compose the music. E.Y. Yip Harburg will create the lyrics and make important contributions to the script and casting of the film. Harold Arlen recalls the birth of the most popular song from their score. Uh, we had finished most of the songs, or all of the songs, but uh, the one for Judy in Kansas. And I knew what I wanted, but when, when it doesn't come, it becomes one of those things that bugs you. And uh, most of us don't like to be bugged. I said to myself, I said, uh, let's go to Grandma's Chinese. And uh, I said, you drive the car. I, I, I don't feel too well right now. I wasn't thinking of work. And as we drove by Schwab's drugstore, I said, pull over. And uh, we stopped. And I took out my uh, little piece of manuscript and put down what you know now is Over the Rainbow. Of course, it needed Mr. Harburg's lyric. An arid, colorless place. Almost no flowers there because it's so dry. The only thing in her life that was colorful at that point was, I thought, the rainbow. It was the only thing of color that she had ever seen. So I said, I must have a song with rainbow in it. She didn't sit there and say, all right, watch this. I'm going to really blow you away with this. This was just a song in a film. And her performance is the reason. It's the most perfect marriage of a song and an artist that's ever been. When Mama sang over the rainbow, she believed in the sentiment of the song with all of her heart. That's why whenever you hear the song, even today, you think of her. It was that personal. It sounds inconceivable, but Over the Rainbow is cut from the film after the second preview. It slows down the picture, some executives complain, and they consider it undignified for an MGM star to sing in a barnyard. But good sense finally prevails, and the song is restored. While the movie shuts down to recast Buddy Ebsen's part, Mervyn Leroy studies the results of the first two weeks of shooting. Leroy feels that director Richard Thorpe's footage lacks the childlike quality the film needs, and Thorpe is reassigned. 
Director George Cukor has a few days open before starting Gone with the Wind and agrees to help out. He too is appalled at what he sees. He begins altering makeup and costumes for many of the principals. Cukor particularly dislikes Judy Garland's appearance. He takes off her curly blonde wig and half of her makeup. And, he recalls, I told her to remember that she's just a little girl from Kansas. George Cukor departs never realizing how valuable his unsung efforts will be to the final film. And now Leroy makes a surprising decision. He chooses Victor Fleming to take over. Now, Fleming is a tough-talking, no-nonsense director who goes biking and big game hunting with his buddy, Clark Gable. Despite this macho image, Fleming finds the project irresistible. I made the film, he says, because I wanted my two little girls to see a picture that searched for beauty and decency and sweetness and love in the world. Fleming works tirelessly on this difficult project. Then only a few weeks before completion, he is abruptly summoned to the Selznick Studios. There is trouble in Tara. On the Gone with the Wind set, Clark Gable and George Cukor are barely speaking. Gable threatens to quit unless producer David O. Selznick borrows his pal Victor Fleming. Selznick gets MGM to agree. Cukor is out and Fleming is in. King Vito, one of Hollywood's finest filmmakers, will provide the finishing touches on Oz. Sometimes we, we, being in the studio and knowing the director, and uh, the studio would ask to ask you to take over. And so then they said, well, would you take over Wizard of Oz? I said I would, and I went over, and Victor Fleming was a good friend and took me around all the sets and went through the thing. And one day he left, and I took over. It's about as I remember, it's about two and a half weeks, three weeks possibly, <clears throat> which included uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But I did not want any credit, and as long as Victor was alive, I even kept quiet about it. Another element of Oz falls into place when over a hundred little people march into MGM, the first and last time that such a unique gathering would take place. They are billed as the singer midgets, but many are freelancers from vaudeville and circuses all over the world. Only a few are rowdy, most are enthusiastic, and studio workers will never forget them. Munchkin memories are very special. The young man in the middle is Jerry Marin. to welcome you to Munchkin Land. And that's when I handed Judy Garland the lollipop. I was 17, and uh, prior to this, I'd never seen a little man or person in my life or a little woman. And I was all excited because uh, I heard there were going to be quite a few little men and women. And, and we got on the bus where I seen all of us. Oh, I was so excited. Little guys just like me. And, I watch how they walk and watch how they talk. And it was exciting. I said, my goodness, here I am in Hollywood for the first time in pictures and with the biggest studio. As coroner, I'm well, when we met the casting director, he took a look at us and he picked about eight of us to say the lines of the Munchkin Corner. I probably enunciated a little bit more distinctly or more emphatically than some of the others 
So he says, okay, you're the coroner. And then, of course, Adrian, the gentleman who is in charge of costumes, measured every single munchkin and designed an individual costume for each person so that it took the costume department about five weeks to make up all these costumes, during which time we were rehearsing. So as soon as the costumes were ready, we were ready to start shooting. Jack Dawn took each one of us and said, well, now, what is your part? What are your lines? And then he would put on a makeup for us. And then as soon as he was finished with us, they would take a still shot, and that was to put in the files. And then each other munchkin who had a speaking part was likewise done a master makeup by Jack Dorn and put in the file so that when we were ready to shoot, all they had to do was take that picture out of the file and one of the assistant makeup men would put on the same uh, whiskers and beard so that we would be the have the same appearance every day that we were on the set. He's known as Leo the Lion's best friend, A. Arnold Gillespie, everyone calls him Buddy, is Hollywood's dean of special effects. And Oz presents him with his greatest challenge. Buddy Gillespie must create a dazzling array of special effects, many of them never before attempted. A floating farmhouse and a floating head, a melting witch and flying monkeys, fireballs, talking trees, and a terrifying tornado. Ever wonder how this special effect was accomplished? Gillespie drops a miniature farmhouse from the top of a soundstage. He shoots it in slow motion and later will reverse the film so the farmhouse appears to be falling into the camera. The floor of the soundstage is painted to look like a Kansas sky with some dry ice vapor for clouds. The most astonishing illusions often have the simplest explanations. Buddy Gillespie reveals his solution to a spectacular effect no one has ever tackled before. The Wizard of Oz, of course, presented a lot of very, very interesting problems, and the tornado was one of the toughest, naturally, that we had faced. We didn't quite know what to do. But anyway, the tornado was finally resolved by building a uh, funnel type of thing out of muslin, and uh, we put the top part of the thing on a gantry that moved the full length of the stage and the lower part of the tornado was, uh, went into a slot in the floor with a, a S sort of a path, and it progressed towards the camera with a dustpan with, with Fuller's Earth, which gave the cloud of dust at the bottom, and the, the tornado was about 30-some-odd uh, feet in length. Wizard of Oz will continue shortly with special effects secrets and disasters on the set. From one standpoint of the work was that the hours were long and the time off from work was short. During this period, we had to have our dinner, sleep, and get back up again at 5 o'clock in the morning. We hardly ever arrived home uh, earlier than, than 7.30 or 8. So you see how, what a short time we had. There's no recreation, none whatsoever. Uh, Judy, of course, being a girl, but she had to have her hair done every morning. She had to have it exactly the same way it was the day before. 
Composer Harold Arlen's home movies provide the only backstage glimpse of the stars of Oz, all of whom managed to keep their spirits up despite long hours, intense heat, and uncomfortable wardrobe and makeup. A lot of people ask me about uh, the costumes. I had a rubber mask. The only unfortunate thing about it was that it sort of closed the pores in my face. And when the lights got real hot and they uh, ate up all the oxygen, I couldn't breathe. But worst of all is Bert Law. His costume was 90 pounds. <laughs> what a perfectly ridiculous kind of costume to put on a fellow like Bert Law, because Bert Law uh, was, was a nervous type. Bert Law, he was always undoing the buttons. He always had gas on his stomach. He couldn't eat anything. And in his costume, it was literally true. He couldn't eat anything. Jack Haley recalls his miseries. I was doing a, uh, a radio show. I had my own radio show. And staying up late with the writers. So I had to be on what they call a reclining board. And I would go to sleep as soon as I got on the reclining board. And Bertlaw said, that Haley can sleep on a beat hook. In a film that is breaking new ground, there are all sorts of unexpected accidents and injuries. For Margaret Hamilton, Oz is a frightening experience that she will always remember. It was the end of my first scene of the picture. And she pulls around and stands on, on this little elevator that went down slowly or went down fast. In this case, it dropped out from under me. It left my feet, and I followed it. And it went just like clockwork, and that's the one you see, the first one we did. Then we came back from lunch, and everybody, again, is tired. It was all just one mistake after another. And uh, I stepped down, the smoke all came up, and I went down. Uh, I felt just something warmth on my face. And then there were some dropping things burning, and I thought, what in the world is that? I had a wonderful young man, Jack Young, who really saved my life. He was right there and grabbed a hold of me, and we ran to the uh, first aid station on the set, and where he began working on my face to get the, uh, the makeup off. We didn't know this until early the next day, but I had a second degree on my face and third on my hand. After he got the makeup off, which was very traumatic for me, because it was it was just it hurt so much. I was just, you know, you just you sort of tremble. You just can't help it. You're just, I was just shaking with it. And finally, he got through, and he said, oh, I know it's been awful, and he just said, I'll tell you about it. Right now, I want you to know that there's copper in that makeup, and if I didn't get that off, it would have gone on eating into your face. The legends of Munchkin mischief begin almost immediately. Most stories are greatly exaggerated. Some are true. An eyewitness is 31-year-old MGM contract player Robert Young. It's kind of interesting when I look back now. I always thought of a, a major lot as a, like a small town. And these munchkins, they were all over the place. Uh, and so many of them, I lost track, I don't know, a hundred or something like that. And wonderful little people. I just loved them, adored every one of them. But they were all over the place. And they were hiding under benches, and they come out of the bushes, and they were climbing upstairs and falling downstairs. Because as soon as the director said, cut, they went. <laughs> when we were doing the picture, they tried to restrict us, because don't forget, you got about 125 midgets, and they were all curious. And, and there were two brothers. They were a little bit uh, drunky, you know. But not on the set, though, believe it or not. 
There was one other little gentleman. He drank quite a bit, but he was very quiet. He was the perfect image of a midget, you know. Hamburg hat, the little king. I mean, he was, he was cute as a bug's ear. A boy could eat drink. No, they didn't have much time. We worked six days a week, from five in the morning till about six in the evening. The only day they had off was Sunday. So it was 90% uh, fabrication. It makes for good copy, I guess. Judy Garland's children, Liza Minnelli and Joey and Lorna Luft, have personal insights into the Munchkin adventures. The stories proliferate with their mother's occasional appearances on the Jack Parr TV show. Oh, I see. Well, what about the, the Munchkin? Yeah, how about the, the oh. what? <laughs> the Munch, the Munch, Munchkin. Munchkin. What? Yeah. Were they little kids or were they, they little were men? Drunks. They were little drunks. <laughs> what, they, what, 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 what did they do? What did they do? What did they do? Well, one of them, uh, who was about 40, uh, a gentleman asked me for dinner, and I couldn't say, I don't want to go out. I can't because you're a midget. I, I just said, no, my mother wouldn't fight. And he said, oh, come on, bring your mom, too, you know. How big was he? About two inches high. <laughs> Our mother had an amazing sense of humor, and anybody who really knew her knew what a funny, bright, witty uh, raconteur she was. And she, her vocabulary was immense. And she had a way of telling a story. She could change anything. So anything that she talked about would become an epic joke, almost. And it, you, we used to love to listen to her. And she did that several times, telling stories about the Wizard of Oz. And they have since passed into a myth. I mean, they really, people believe a lot of the things that she has told, which in fact, we know are not true. Whenever we do that little dance up the yellow brick road. Yeah, I remember that. I was supposed to be with them. Yeah. You know. They'd crowd you They'd shut me out. I, they'd close in and the three of them, and I would be in back of them dancing. <laughs> and I was, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough, you know, to say, wait a minute. Uh, and so the director, Victor Fleming, was darling, man. He was always up on a boom would say, hold it, you three dirty hands, let that little girl in there. <laughs> Another tall tale by Judy Garland. Coming up, rioting fans and Judy Garland's glorious night at the Oscars on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. New Year's Day, 1939. The Wizard of Oz still has three more months of shooting, but the MGM publicity department is wasting no time. An elaborate float makes a grand appearance in the Tournament of Roses parade, and thousands of children get an eye-popping look at their Oz fantasy characters come to life. Judy Garland endures an endless barrage of interviews, radio shows, and silly newsreel appearances. Double privilege, Selma and Jeanette, to be able to congratulate you on being elected co-president of the Twins Club of Greater New York. Thank you, Judy. Get on your mark. Get set. Go. Even Judy Garland's 17th birthday party becomes a public event. She and Mickey Rooney are the newest rage among teenage moviegoers, and their boss, Louis B. Mayer, is well aware of it. The studio sends Judy and Mickey to New York to open the film. 
as innocent commuters scramble for their trains, Grand Central Station becomes a madhouse. The much-publicized arrival causes a near riot. 10,000 screaming fans are held back by an emergency squad of 250 patrolmen and 25 detectives hastily summoned to maintain order. But despite the heat in the bedlam, Mickey and Judy survive. When the Capitol Theater opens its doors, over 15,000 people are in line, circling the entire block. After each screening of Oz, Mickey and Judy perform a specially prepared musical comedy act. Garland and Rooney and Oz break all attendance records in one of the most successful launchings of a film in history. Wherever they appear, New York audiences go wild. One reporter says, these kids are the biggest news since Lindbergh came home. At the New York World's Fair, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia gives Mickey and Judy a guided tour. Um, Mr. Mayor, that looks like we're going to move in. <laughs> you move in, you tell the kids. And, hey, what do you think of this fair? Isn't it great? It's really Isn't it fine? This would be the last summer of peace before World War II begins. For millions. For years. It's the end of the yellow brick road. No more rainbows. In 1939, 85 million Americans go to the movies at least once a week. Now, that's an incredible 65% of the population. But what a selection they have. Most movie critics and film historians agree that in 1939, Hollywood produced more classic films than it did in any other year. Oz must compete for its audience against movies like these. sets box office records that will stand for decades. But The Wizard of Oz, MGM's costliest film to date, loses money in its first release. Yet there's still a chance for glory. Oscar night, February 29th, 1940. This evening, the rivalry is especially strong. Academy voters have been presented with a nearly impossible task, how to choose the winner when there are so many winners. 
Oz has garnered an unexpected five nominations, including Best Picture. But Gone with the Wind, boasting a total of 13 nominations, is the odds-on favorite. It would appear that David O. Selznick and Vivian Lee are shoe-ins in their respective categories. Still, the Oscars have always been an evening of surprises, and the other nominees pray for a miracle. Master of Ceremonies Bob Hope sets the tone for the Thank evening. You. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Really, I think this is a wonderful thing, a benefit like this for David Selznick, and I want to tell you... No one is really surprised when Selznick's team dominates the ceremonies with an unprecedented eight Academy Awards, including Best Director for Victor Fleming, who probably would have been nominated for Oz had he not also directed Gone with the Wind. Ironically, it's Fleming's other producer, Mervyn Leroy, who presents his Oscar, but Oz is not altogether out of the running. Herbert Stothart wins for his brilliant musical scoring, and Harburg and Arlen win for their song, Over the Rainbow. Then, Mickey Rooney makes a welcome announcement. Members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, honored guests, it's my privilege this year to present that award for the outstanding performance by a juvenile actress during the past year, Miss Judy Garth. As the evening winds down, the most requested song is Over the Rainbow, reminding both winners and losers that there are new dreams they can dare to dream. But not a soul in this room can possibly conceive what the future holds for the Wizard of Oz. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. After its initial release, Oz would appear occasionally through several reissues and kitty matinees. And then, in 1956, along came television. For the first two decades, most viewers could only see it in black and white, which didn't stop the millions who had never seen it before from falling under its spell. You know, it's interesting how you can watch a bad movie, and once is enough. In the case of The Wizard of Oz, a hundred times may not be enough. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind. For the next 30 years, Judy Garland makes successful appearances all over the world, and memories of The Wizard of Oz are never far away. No performance would be complete without Garland singing Over the Rainbow. In a letter to Harold Arlen, Judy writes, Over the Rainbow has become part of my life. It's so symbolic of everybody's dreams and wishes that I'm sure that's why some people get tears in their eyes when they hear it. I've sung it thousands of times, and it's still the song that's closest to my heart. I think it's endured because of people's dreams and because of the possibilities and because that there may be some place over the rainbow, that everybody wants to find something better, and even if it's more colorful or more outrageous or scarier or everything, you end up wanting to go home. And then, you know, that's, that's the best place you can be. After all of the things that you learn, no matter how beautiful everything else is, home is what matters. Why, oh, why can't I
In a moment, the wonderful Wizard of Oz returns with Angela Lansbury. Oz succeeded in spite of its chaotic creative process. The fate somehow uniting those who cared about the project, those who were more than capable at their jobs, those who were genuinely proud of their work. The film that we enjoy so much is the happy result of their collaborative efforts. So let's all say thank you to them and keep these marvelous talents in mind the next time you and I watch the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Let's get out of here. Look, Emerald City is closer and prettier than ever. Out of the woods, you're out of the dark, you're out of the night. Step into the sun, step into the light. Keep straight ahead for the most glorious place on the face of the earth or the sky. Step into the sun, step into the light. March up to the gate and build it. Open. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was directed by Jack Haley Jr., the son of Jack Haley Sr., who played the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. As you just heard, Jack Sr. thought Judy Garland's performance held The Wizard of Oz together. Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow, echoed that thought, calling Garland so bright for the part of Dorothy. To many, Judy Garland will always be remembered as the little girl from Kansas. The film meant a great deal to Garland, who took the idea of The Wizard of Oz seriously. I believe in the idea of the rainbow, Garland once said, and I've spent my entire life trying to get over it. It's no secret that much of Judy Garland's adult life was plagued by personal demons, including problems with depression and prescription pills, a spiraling condition that began in her teens when she was prescribed barbiturates by the studio. She'd get uppers to lose weight, then downers to help her sleep. This cycle of addiction haunted Garland the rest of her life. She died in 1969 at the age of 47, though throughout all of her ups and downs, her star never dimmed. She was an electric performer, regularly managing to power through her pain to entertain.